And after this, I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a, a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of a, an emerald. And around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. <laughs> and around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle, in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you. You created all things, and by your will... They existed and were created. And Lord, that is you. We are not just speaking to the air. We are speaking to the one who sits on the throne. How stunning is that? So today, we meet you. Father, I would just pray more of you. Help us to grab hold of more of you. More of you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, grab your seats. Happy Mother's Day. And uh, one of the best things you could do on Mother's Day is grab your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Because that's where we're going. So please turn there. Um, and I actually mean that very seriously. Moms, you need this passage today. Well, we're opening God's word. We're approaching God's word. Remember, we want to hear what God has to say, not what I want to say, not what you want to say, not what I think, not what you think, but what God thinks. We, we, we approach it that way. We, we approach it with a framework that uh, we are entering an apocalyptic uh, prophetic letter. Uh, we are in the, the beginning stages, week four, of a, uh, of a study through the book of Revelation. Remember, we're not doing a, an entire systematic theology study uh, of eschatology or end times. We're doing a book of Revelation study. And, and I'm approaching this as your tour guide, uh, allowing the text to unfold and allowing us to experience it together uh, today. Um, I'm also going to be having kind of about three pause moments where it's I'm using the text 
to equip you on how to approach the text, kind of with some do's and some don'ts with it. It's just the kind of text that's just perfect for me to do that, so I'm going to take advantage on that, how to study your Bible, and a few comments with that. Uh, we're ready to begin. Bible's open on our laps. A word of God. Ready? Okay, Revelation chapter 4. Uh, let's begin working through what Rob just so wonderfully uh, read through for us. And the first four words, I have the English Standard Version, is after this, I looked. After this. Actually, it's plural. It really is after these things uh, that have taken place. Chapter 4 begins uh, with a statement of chronology. It's a movement. After this, something uh, we've been talking about, something now is moving. The narrative is progressing. Uh, this term, after this, is used in various sections, by the way, of Revelation, kind of as a standout moment, as a, as a time to start uh, the signal of a new vision, what's going on. We are actually in now what is the second vision that John is having. The, the the first one began in chapter 1 and verse 10 and was telling us about the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is no uh, hippie, sandaled uh, preacher dude out on, the, out on the ways from a poor carpenter's son. He is the magnified, glorified, risen Jesus Christ of Revelation chapter 1. He sees that and then he moves into that one has some things to say to seven uh, local churches that also have implications and applications to all churches of all times. And then the second vision after this begins in chapter 4, verse 1. Um, by the way, I, I say that in a kind of way that I want to make sure that you don't think that, in other words, new visions, all of a sudden what was is done and over, now we're moving on to something new, they're not together. No, no, in Revelation, I think we're going to see these build upon each other. Exactly how it went, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we're, we're in this next movement here. And uh, also, uh, John notes about in chapter 1 things that he saw. Then in chapters 2 and 3, he notes about things that are. I'm telling you, if all of a sudden we begin to observe that the Lord says, now I want to tell you about some things to come, uh, go back to Revelation 1.19, and I think you found the outline for the book as a whole uh, there, let's see what happens. We're going to let it unfold. Uh, after this, uh, John says, I looked and behold, uh, a door uh, standing open in heaven. So John foresees something. It's like, behold. By the way, when you see behold, it's like, pay attention. Uh, something significant is on the table now. Behold, there's a door, uh, and it's opened. Uh, by the way, in the Greek, it's a perfect passive tense. This is kind of cool because it means this. Perfect tense in the Greek means it's an action that's already happened and yet continues to have ramifications. In other words, this. The door was opened and has remained opened, and it's also a passive voice, which means John didn't open the door, but someone opened the door at a point in time, and the door's still open. I don't know anything more about the door than John says there's like a door, and it's opened. And he like goes there, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, the scene has shifted, by the way, because he's in heaven now. It's open into heaven. We've gone from earth. We're now uh, making a movement into heaven. Most of Revelation... Uh, tour group uh, uh, comes from the perspective of looking at things from heaven's eyes. And that's actually quite important as we move along. It's seeing things from heaven's eyes, if you will. So John sees a door, he, he, he hears a voice. Uh, verse 1, uh, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, uh, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John goes through this door that's already been opened. He hears this voice. By the way, doesn't that sound like a description we've already heard? Yes, it does. Revelation chapter 1, there was one with a trumpet voice, and that was the resurrected, magnified Jesus Christ. And John is making a reference back to that. You know, the, the one that I initially heard, the one that speaks like a trumpet voice, he doesn't have a trumpet sticking out of his mouth. 
Okay, it just, it's like a, a, a strong, resounding, and this trumpet one said, come up here, and I will show you what must take, what must take place after this. Man, that fits with Revelation 1.19. Outline, uh, uh, I think, of the general uh, idea of the book of Revelation. And John is invited up, he's admitted up. John didn't run there. We don't have anything about John saying, hey, I, I really want to get like a look into the, the action of the throne room. It's just like, hey, John, come on. He's invited up. He's admitted up. He's told to come up here, and he's told to come up here with a purpose to show what must take place after this. John is about to receive future data, future information, things relating to the future. And friends, by the way, everything we see here in chapter 4, chapter 5, has to do with laying a foundation of future coming information. If you do not understand who the Father is, who God the Father is, what he is like, I'm going to tell you the rest of Revelation does not make sense. But when you come to understand who the Father is and even where he sits, uh, some of the things that become hard later on uh, make sense because of who he is. Everything that's about to occur is tied to what we're in now. Pay attention to what's going on. Verse 2, he says, at once I was in the Spirit. That's the same term that was used in the first vision in chapter 1, verse 10. John accepts the invitation to come up and be shown. By the way, the Son of God is involved, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and now the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is on the table as well. Two out of three. And by the way, we're going for three out of three. And we're going to be there in a second, but don't lose this. The second person of the Trinity is here. The third person of the Trinity is involved. Let's keep on rolling in the text here. Pause. Question, um, or let me make a statement. Bible study, exegetical statement, comment number one. Do not read your theology hopes into the text. Do be careful to not read your theology approach, your theology hopes into a text. I'm going to give you an example here. It talks here in the beginning of verse 4. It says this upward call kind of idea. It's like, like, come on up. And, And I have a question. Is this referring to the rapture of the church? Is that what this is referring to here? Uh, I'll say the terminology sounds and it feels like that. It's like, come up here, uh, come up here at once, kind of like a blink of the eye kind of a thing. Uh, Also with it, here's an interesting fact. Uh, Prior to this in chapters 1 through 3, 22 times is the word ecclesia. That's the word for church. And all of a sudden, there's no more use of the word church until the very end of the book of Revelation. Is this then the church that's all of a sudden pulled out? Walverd would say, it seems that, and I think he's right in saying that way, it seems that the church as a body of Christ is out of the picture. It feels and sounds like it. Here's the problem. Uh, I can't say that. Nobody can say that. It's bad exegesis to say that. But why do I say that? Because of a couple reasons. Number one, frankly, because the word ecclesia has been so used in the first three chapters, it could just be assumed that now it continues on. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it's gone. Maybe it means that it's, it's so strong, it's staying. Uh, another idea is, is that uh, uh, the, the use of the word ecclesia in the first three chapters is always referring to a context of a local church, not the universal church. And all of a sudden, to grab the word and apply it to a universal capacity is kind of now moving the use of the word along. Third, even pre-tribulational rapture, good exegetes like uh, MacArthur and Patterson admit you cannot say chapter 4 is the rapture of the church. Listen, friends, hear me very, very clearly. This is not a discussion about the rapture of the church right at the moment. This is a discussion about good Bible exegesis. And sometimes what I'm saying, using that as an example, is you have to be careful, especially in apocalyptic literature, not to read things in. And I've already told you, I would love a pre-trib rapture. 
but I'm not going to read it into the text. Okay? Bible study moment. You weren't expecting that one. Here we go. Do not read your preferences into the text. Uh, After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne in heaven and the one seated on the throne. Behold a throne. And there is one on the throne. Some observations here. Just imagine John entering here. He's scanning the scene like, I did not step in here on my own. I was brought here. And whoa. And in the whole woeness of it all, what is the thing that stands out? A throne. Everything in this place is all centering in on a throne. By the way, The Old Testament text, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7 should be running on your page. Let me say it again. Critical text of the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7 all have throne room scenes. And they should be a part of it, but we're not doing eschatology. We're doing the book of Revelation. Uh, thrones in the, in the first century, they depicted authority and power and glory and sovereign rule. We in our culture don't quite get thrones a whole lot today. In fact, we literally as a nation are kind of an anti-throne culture. But back in the day, thrones meant authority and power and glory and especially sovereign rule. But know this, it's not about the chair. It's about the one on the chair. There is a throne, and ultimately, this is about the one that's on that throne. It's really interesting. Uh, uh, John gives no physical description of the one on the throne. He only gives a feel for it. Take a look at this. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of of an emerald. Let's talk about some of these. There is one that is seated on this throne. He is seated there. There's there's no fight over the throne. There's no fuss over the throne. There's no uprising over who's on their throne. There is one on the throne, and we're going to find out everybody in the scene is good with the one on the throne. There is one on the throne, and also I'm just going to note, he's seated. He's not standing. He doesn't have his feet over the arms of the chair and half asleep. But he's seated on it like someone who is actually in the process of sovereign rulership. He's seated on it. He's not pacing. He's not nervous. He's on it. He has the appearance of Jasper. Jasper back in the day, it had all kinds of colors to it. It was, as I read about it, it was told that it had red and yellow and brown. Some Jasper was opaque, you could not see through it. Some of it was translucent, you could see through it. The one on the the, the throne was not a Jasper stone, but John uses this terminology, and part of the terminology is, is, is like, he has the appearance of Jasper. And then he says he has the appearance of carnelian or sardius. Actually, uh, sardius, uh, this carnelian, came from the area of Sardis, which was one of the seven churches that we just talked about last Sunday. It's a deep, fiery red. I think the New International Version says it's a ruby. It, it's, it's that deep red kind of color. It had an, he had an appearance of that. And then it tells us that there's a rainbow that had an, an appearance of an emerald. Emerald, what, what color is that? It's green, like a green appearance to it. Uh, By the way, the grammar idea in this rainbow is not so much that it's like a semicircle, but more the grammar in it has more of an idea like it's a complete circle, like there's this halo thing going on, this rainbow like fully circling and encompassing around in some way, shape, manner, or form the throne that's there. And then there's these, these brilliant jasper and this fiery red and this emerald and and was 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 the emerald rainbow thing was it all the colors of emerald and shades of of green in this rainbow thing or or was it like somehow there was this prism emerald that then out of it was shining all the colors of the rainbow i don't know 
But, but, but this is what's being described around. Doug, what does it all mean? All right. Here's what you do. Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament and Revelation itself. So let me throw some things out. Don't do too much writing here because I'm about to blast it all away. Jasper, Exodus 28. It talks about uh, the first of the high priest's 12 stones breastplate. The high priest had a breastplate, and across it, there were, uh, I think, four rows of three stones, or three or four, it doesn't matter. And the first stone was, was the jasper of that, and each stone represented a tribe of Israel, and the first one was jasper, and it was the tribe of Reuben, and that was Exodus 28. Then Isaiah 54 when prophesying about the rebuilding of the temple, it talks about how jasper will be used in the buttresses of the rebuilt temple. Then in Revelation 21, verse 11, you go there and you find out that it talks about the new Jerusalem is going to have a, a jasper that's clear as crystal radiating, that God's glory is like that. And, and in verse 18, it talks about the, the walls of the new Jerusalem are jasper, like clear as crystal. Then Cornelius or Sardius, uh, Old Testament, Exodus 28, uh, the last of the 12 high priest's breastplate stones that he, that he, when he would put it on, the last of them was Carnelian or Sardius. It represented the tribe of Benjamin. You got the beginning one and the end one. That's kind of cool. Maybe that's representing all of them. Could be. But I don't know. The Emerald Rainbow. I mean, that sounds like the Wizard of Oz. Uh, no, better yet, Old Testament, that sounds like Genesis 9. And, and clearly the Old Testament, Noah and the Ark, and, and Noah and the Ark and the Rainbow, then is, 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 is an ongoing representation of, without question, of God's perfect justice and mercy combined together. You go to Ezekiel 1.28, it talks about the idea of a rainbow of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the glory of God. Now, Bible study comment number two. A biblical apocalyptic is not an open mix and match picture game. Be very careful. Uh, you can go and you can uh, uh, kind of have this thing, well, let's word search the word in, in the Old Testament and pull up everything and, and then we'll just apply that to it. Okay, if we're going to do that, here's one for you. This is a crazy example. Green rainbow. Genesis 1 talks about God created green plants for eating. That means rainbow, green plants for eating. That means the father loves to eat green bananas. Got it? Rainbow, green, food. I'm telling you, I know that's off the wall and that's on purpose, but it's Oftentimes, that is what's done with apocalyptic literature sometimes. We go and we grab things, we go, that's cool, and, and that reminds me of that, and that looks like that. And the question is, is, is that what John saw? Because it's really not open to wild interpretation. And how about this? How about this? I would just say, I do not think John walked into the throne room invited. And John looks around and he goes, oh my, the father, Jasper, 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 uh, uh, Jasper, that's purity. That's representing purity. And, and Carnelian, that red, yeah, right, 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 right. I saw Christ crucified. And that's the blood of Christ and the redemption coming out. And, and then John looks over and he goes, Jasper and Carnelian, those are the last stones in the high priest's breastplate. This must be representing all the tribes of, of Israel. And, and, and then John's looking and he's in the emerald rainbow and he's going, there's justice and mercy. Let me tell you, I don't think that's what is happening at all. And I'm saying it in a way I don't think. I think this is what happened. John walked into the throne room of God and he goes, and I mean this in the right way, oh my God! With the bright, just lights like Jasper, just and red reflecting and bouncing and all out of the throne and, and this rainbow and lights and John's just like, whoa! And then you try and describe it. Sometimes we get so lost in some of the surrounding things that we lose sight of the center. Moms, did you just hear me? 
Sometimes we get so lost in dirty diapers and lunchtime, and all of those are important, but it's so easy to lose sight of the reality of raising children to love the Lord. Friends, John is beholding the Father on the throne. This is not so much a theological seminary class for John as it is a pure experience of seeing the Father. And by the way, he never, I think, really saw the Father. He just saw what's coming out of the Father. Because Scripture talks about how no one can look and live. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on your head. And here is the revelation for million-dollar question. Who are the 24 elders? Who are these 24 presbyteros? And friends, I'm just going to tell you right up front, I spent over 10 hours of research this week on this topic with over 15 commentaries around my office, and here's the end result. Nobody can be sure. I have to take a couple minutes to validate some of the time spent. (laughs) Okay? I am a pastor, (laughs) okay? So here we go. The question is, are they human or are they heavenly beings? That's really what it's about. Let me give you this. Sweet, Alford, Volvard, Fulett, Sweet, Groff, Ford, Wall, MacArthur, Harrington, et cetera, say that they're likely human beings. And by the way, these are all good guys that I look forward to spending eternity in heaven with. And so you as well, I trust. Why do they have that? Because angels are not referred to as presbyteros in Scripture, and it's true. Secondly, because angels are not said to be wearing crowns anywhere in Scripture. Third, white clothing in Revelation is only described as being worn by the saints. Fourth, their crowns are, in the Greek, they're Stephanus crowns. That means they're like the, 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 the Olympic crowns. They're given as a victory, not, they're not diadem. There's literally the Greek word diadem. He could have used it. These are victory crowns, not diadem crowns. And, and angels don't have anything to be victorious over sin, so uh, it has to be. And, and, and by the way, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Next, are they angelic beings and, and great individuals who love the Lord and are redeemed in Christ? Beckwith and Charles and Moffat and Morris and Ladd and Beasley and Aiken and Mounts and Johnson and Osborne and Thomas. They would say, uh, well, there are no human beings in chapter 4 other than John. What are humans being there? By the way, wouldn't John know some of the apostles if they were? Secondly, Isaiah 24, 23, the angels could be viewed as being called elders in that passage. Potentially, that's the, that's the argument back. Also, Psalm 89, 7, God sits in the council of his holy ones, angels. And maybe this is who they are. As to the Stephanus crowns, they could be referring to their royal function under the Lord as, ki- as a king did in the first century under the rule of an emperor. By the way, why can't angels sing about God's redemption? Why can't they declare a crown of God's crowning redemption? Two orders of angels are named in the Bible, cherubim and seraphim. Maybe these have to do with them. Add that, this to the debate. Human or angel, do they represent Israel? Do they represent the church? Or do they represent both? Pastor Doug, what do you think? I've already told you. I don't know. And no one can. I'm doing this to try and prepare us for the whole book. Okay? Listen, who they are in chapter 4 does not change chapter 4 at all. Plus, they're going to be coming up in the text. To come. 
and maybe we'll learn more, and I'm committed to allowing it to unfold, so maybe we'll add more information. And by the way, if someone says that they know absolutely for sure, they need to humble themselves. Because Bible study, dog, or Bible study moment number three is this. Where there is no dog, do not be dogmatic. Where there is no dog, do not be dogmatic. You can seem, and you can think, and you can lean, but do not make dogmatic what has no dog. But let me say this. We can be dogmatic about what they do. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. Verse 5. From the throne, more stuff is going on. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Flashes of lightning. It's, it's the idea of it's going out from. It's proceeding from the throne. But it's actually not the throne that, that's shooting lightning out. It's the one on the throne that's shooting lightning out from the throne. Karen and I were driving last night somewhere and a bolt of lightning. Boom! Lightning is so cool. And yet when it gets close, it shakes you to your boots. And lightning is shooting out of the throne of the one sitting on the throne. And it's rumblings. The Greek word is used with people to say voice. That's why if you have the King James Version, it says voice. But it's not like people are going boom or any kind of voice. If you want to use it, it's lightning voice. It's the sound with, with, with unlive things. It's, it's, it's the voice, the sound, the noise of it. And so lightning is coming out, rumbles are coming out, and peals of thunder going on. By the way, does this not sound like Mount Sinai? In Exodus 19, boom! God is home! Cool scene. I trust you are picturing it in your mind. You have to. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Torches of fire. Ties back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, the seven spirits. And Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 4 talk about these are visible representations of the spirit. The spirit is in the house. This is the Holy Spirit, what's going on. You can go back to Isaiah 11, Ezekiel 4. You'll read about these like seven characteristics of the spirit going on. By the way, I'll just note Matthew 3, 16. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Not a dove, but like a dove. In Acts 2, 3, the Holy Spirit descends like tongues. It wasn't tongues going blah, 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 down, but it's like that. And here there are seven torches of flame. By the way, these are not like those little indoor around the pool, what is it, tiki kind of torch things, you know, or like keeping the bugs away or candles. The word that's used here is these are torches that are not to be blown out. These are torches that give light to the whole room. Seven of them. The throne-sitting Father and the resurrected, magnified, glorified Son and the light-bearing Holy Spirit are all in the house. In a sea of glass like crystal, verse 6. It's not glass, it's not crystal, but it's like it. It's as, it's as if it. What does it mean? Different thoughts on it. The sea in the Old Testament is so often re referred to as a very turmoil thing of the world. But yet here it's before the Lord and it's like glass. Later in Revelation we'll find out that the beast comes out of the sea. So be careful <laughs> what this is. Also in the Old Testament there was what was called the sea of brass in the tabernacle in the temple. And that's where cleansing was going on. A few think that this is representing baptism. I have to say, I'm so not there. Maybe it's the idea of distance and separation to emphasize the Father's holiness and purity. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe it's there to represent the totality of the whole awesomeness of the scene. 
And just one more time for John to be able to see something that, 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 that is so hard to grasp and so hard to explain. Let's stop trying to humanize it. Let's stop trying to define every little detail of it and take in the whole magnitude of it. The Father is on the throne. And we have no idea how awesome he is. And this is just no spiritualistic picture. Do you get John giving any kind of idea? Like I was out and I was just thinking of a poem. Verse 6. There's more. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Seven spirits of God before the throne, a sea of glass, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures. Full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. Man, I want these guys on my football team. <laughs> Ed, six wings are full of eyes all around and within. Whoa, dude. The prepositions, it's interesting. It's got two prepositions there. It's around the throne on each side of the throne. It's kind of this idea of somehow an inner circle. I don't know exactly how they're placed, and it doesn't matter. We just know this. They're like right up by the throne. They're next to it, and they're surrounding the throne of the Father of the one who sits there. Four living creatures, four living beasts, the King James uses. I think both of those are kind of a, a wrong nomenclature because creatures and beasts are ugly and gnarly and scary. I mean, uh, Beauty and the Beast, the beast before he became the blonde stud monster, uh, the beast is like someone to be scared of. And these are not beasts to be scared of and run from. I, I'm going to call them four living ones because the word zoa means to live. And it's like in the Greek, it's, there's four living ones. So I'm going to just go with that because they're not ugly, scary, creepy beasts. These are awesome that are there. And John describes them full of eyes in front and behind. One like a lion, one like an ox. Not an ox, but like an ox. The third one is unique. It has the face of a man. The fourth, like an eagle in flight, each with six wings full of eyes all around and within. So crazy cool. What are these beings? I don't really want to tell you all the options, but because I'm going where I'm going with this and letting you know and being careful in your exegesis, there's nine. They represent the four Gospels. They represent the Zodiac. The ox is Taurus, the lion is Leo, man is Scorpio, eagle is Aquarius. I'm not too hep on that one. Third, they rep the divine uh, attributes of the Father. Another one is they uh, represent the divine attributes of spiritual character. Another is they represent the four tribes of Israel. Another one is they represent the whole of animate creation. Another is they represent the four principal apostles. Eighth, uh, they are just a class of throne-bearing angels who serve the Father. Ninth, they represent redeemed man. Doug, what do you think? Uh, I am going to say this. I think that they are an exalted order of angelic beings fitting with the seraphim and the cherubim of Scripture. By the way, we which, of which we know very little about. You can go to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 and Isaiah 6. Cherubim, the seraphim, they were uh, put at the, the entry into the Garden of Eden to keep anyone from coming in. Uh, they were on the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they were placed inside the temple as uh, figures representative that. I think we're going to see later that these four dudes have this uh, represented judicial authority from the Father that's going to be given as we, we see with them. They are important, and somehow they have a representing aspect about them of animate creation. Beyond that, here's what we know. They lead in worship. Watch this, verse 8. And day and night, now if I remember my clock right, that's like 24-7, right? And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. Bam! They, they never cease to say this. 
all the time. By the way, one of the things that's really important with this, you know, in our human mindset, it's kind of like, this is so liturgical. Like, like turn to, to page number, uh, uh, reading number 82 and read it. Now read it again. Now read it again. Now read it. Now never stop. At some point, I got to go to the restroom. Uh, you know, it's just, but really, I think there's this idea of what's really going on is these four living creatures. They never, ever have a reason not to do this. In other words, as time and as creation, as, as redemptive history is moving on, every moment is a new moment for them because they have eyes everywhere. They, they, they can see everything. And they're always, every moment, being reminded of the Father and his sovereign rule. And so it's not like, holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's like, there's a new thing. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, my word, there's a new one. Holy, holy, holy. And it's this constant movement of, of, of a heart of seeing the Father in action and responding to that. Separate, separate, separate are you. So cool. No liturgical incantation here. This is full out before the throne laying it all there. And they are in, they are not bored. And the 24 presbyteros, what do they do? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, by the way, pause, you gotta you got reread the text. It's not saying that 24-7 they do this and then the presbyteros are doing this because they fall face down, put their crowns down. I mean, it's like, they go, holy, holy, and they're like, Shh. and then they, uh, next second, holy, holy, and they're like back down, and it's like up and down and up and down. And it's not that. When they're giving 24-7 holy, holy, holy praise to the Lord, then there comes these moments, and whenever, it's really a better translation, would be, and when, and when the living creatures give a glory, honor, and special thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 presbyteros fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. But before I read what they say, do you see what's going on? 24 of them, they're whoever they are. And they're face down. When, when all of a sudden the four give like a special fourth and fifth holy, they're like down on their face and they're taking their victory crowns that somehow has victory representation in them and is placing their victory clown, crowns before the one who deserves all victory. My victory is not my victory. Your victory is not your victory. Why is this important? Because remember chapters two and three talks about overcomers, conquerors coming out. I do think with the 24, there is a representative thing going on. I just laid some stuff out. But in that, that there is a thing where there is this idea of the overcomers, and whether it's represented in whatever fashion there, are laying their overcoming, conquering reality before the one who is the overcomer, conqueror. And moms, in those times, when you're like, I'm so done being not noticed. Those are crown-laying moments before the king. It's not about my victory, it's all about yours. Because these children are yours. They fall down and they worship the eternal and they cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. There clearly is a creation emphasis here. But worthy are you. By the way, friends, God is not... Deism is not what's happening here, where God created and then he just sits back and lets everything go. That is not, 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 not what's happening here. God created and is intricately involved in everything going on. 
of what's taking place. And the four are seeing every moment new things that the Father is worthy of being completely holy and separate of, and they're declaring it. And the 24 at these other times are like, down on their face and giving him glory and praise. Why all this focus on the Father? Why is the whole throne room coming back to the Father? I would answer it this way. Because if John does not have this information, the rest of what's coming does not make sense. And in God's sovereignty, he is laying the ground base for what the rest of the book talks about. Let me say it this way in a tongue twister. John is being shown what John needs to be shown in order for John to be shown more. John is being shown what John needs to be shown in order for John to be shown more. And by the way, you and I are being shown what we're being shown so that you and I can be shown more. And we need to be shown this. The Father sits on the throne. That Father. And all of this going on. And it's time for me and you to get off our throne and to see the one that is on the throne. He is on the throne. And here in all this, as is, is one commentator says, the magnificence of Revelation 4 is to be felt in our spirit more than grasped in our mind's eyes. So I say this. There is a throne. And it is in heaven. And it is mad, majestic. And there is a sovereign one who sits on that throne. Only one. The Father sits on the throne, and everything in the heavenly scene surrounding the throne is all about the one that sits on the throne. And the stunning brilliance of the white lights and the red lights and the emerald just shooting and glimmering and bouncing and reflecting off of the sea of glass and lightning and the thunder and the peals and the roars. That's the one who runs the world. And you may be saying, he's doing a really bad job. Hang on. We'll see what unfolds. But this is not only the one that is in sovereign rule. Know this. This is the one who we will be giving an account to. And so I finish with five things. And the first one is this. Behold the Father in my soul. Friends, this should grip us all. This is not a fairy tale. This is real deal. And there is no room for sin in the throne room. None. None when you get the scene. For the person without Christ, I just want to lovingly say this, this should shake up your soul. They should just shake it up, and it's like, I, 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 I think I'm in relationship with God. Listen, I think and I hope is a really bad place to be on this. And it should. And listen, if this shakes up your soul to the kind of a place where you're like, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? That's exactly where the Father would want you to be at today. And here's what you need to do. You need to grab someone and talk to them. Because I need to know. I don't want to wonder, I want to know. Can I know? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. So if you're without Christ this morning and you're shook up, that's a great place to be. Embrace it and come and talk. Secondly, the person with Christ, this should crank up your soul. Behold the Father on my, in my soul, this should just crank your soul up. That's my dad. That's the king. That's the one. Secondly, behold the Father. In fact, the worship team can come on up because I'm going to wrap up. Behold the Father in my seeing. What we see is not all there is. We need to see what is. And this is what is. We too often think what we see is just it. Friends, this is not it. Thank the Lord. There is more. And we need to see what really is. Moms, a couple of comments here. Uh, just with each of these last couple ones. I just say this. What are your kids seeing you see? 
What are your kids seeing you see? Do, do they see you as a mom whose soul beholds the father? It's tough, moms. See the father, moms. See the fathers. And, and let your kids see you see the father. Third, behold the father in my steps. Are you living as though this life is all that there is? Guys, that's what we're going to be talking about in the forever men on Saturday mornings here, six times this summer. I would ask this, um, how would the father answer that? Are you living for what you see or for what is? Moms, my wife gave me this verse, how sweet is this? Isaiah 40 verse 11. Isaiah 40, verse 11, it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And he gently leads those that are with young. Hey, the one on the throne gently leads those who have young. Fourth, behold the Father in my struggles. Francis Chan this week, he tweeted, when we stare at him, everything fades away into its proper place. Single moms, moms maybe with a lost child, moms maybe with a prodigal, keep looking at the throne. face down before the throne. That's where you need to be. Lastly, behold the Father in my song. Does your worship reflect the throne room? I'm talking about life worship and I'm talking about song worship. Friends, I'm going to tell you, if you're kind of laid back in your worship, I promise you, you will not be in heaven. I promise. So can I maybe encourage you this way? Let's advance in practice. Let's advance in our practice. By the way, singing this morning, I turned to Karen, I'm like, this place is rocking. It's going to be unbelievable before the Lord. It's not going to be grab hymn number 62. I'm not anti-hymns. It's just not going to be. It's just going to be all out, face down, all over on the floor, in the air, in the skies. Bam! Moms, your children need to see you worship the Father in life every day. Lord, you are awesome. You are amazing. We behold you. We behold you. We struggle to behold you. That's the reality. But oh, Lord, I pray that we would finish strong from here, that we would grow in our advancing of seeing you. Behold the throne. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Press us, push us, mold us, make us. Worthy are you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.